We discovered that there were secrets that your body was trying to tell you that could really help you optimize performance. But no one could monitor those things. And that's when we set out to build the technology that we thought could really change the world. Welcome to the WHOOP podcast. I'm your host, Will Ahmed, founder and CEO of WHOOP, where we are on a mission to unlock human performance. At WHOOP, our clients range from the best professional athletes in the world to Navy SEALs to fitness enthusiasts to Fortune 500 CEOs and executives. The common thread among WHOOP members is a passion to improve. What does it take to optimize performance for athletes, for humans, really anyone? And now that we've just launched the all-new WhoopStrap 3.0 featuring WHOOP Live, which takes real-time training and recovery analysis to the next level, you're going to hear how many of these users are optimizing their body with WHOOP and with other things in their life. On this podcast, we dig deeper, we interview experts, we interview industry leaders across sports, data, technology, physiology, athletic achievement, you name it. How can you use data to improve your body? What should you change about your life? My hope is that you'll leave these conversations with some new ideas and a greater passion for performance. With that in mind, I welcome you to the WHOOP podcast. So the beauty of this assessment is that you just need 10 minutes on a treadmill to get all of the information you need to build a diet plan, all of the information you need to get a workout plan, but also screen for all of the conditions that account for roughly 90% of healthcare expenses today. And you can do that using just a treadmill. Hello folks, my guest today is Panos Papadiamantes, co-founder of Pnoe, maker of the world's first portable cardiometabolic analyzer. Basically, it's a mask that you wear for a 10-minute test on a treadmill, and from analyzing your breath, you gain incredible insights into your health and fitness. We've got a couple of these in the Whoop office. They are very cool. Uh, Panos and I discuss exactly what cardiometabolic analysis is and how Pnoe is making it available to everyone, the concept of caloric efficiency, what it means for endurance athletes, as well as people who are trying to lose weight, and other things cardiometabolic analysis can do for you beyond determining how many calories you should be consuming each day including your heart rate training zones, testing the efficiency of your breathing, checking for risks of heart disease, and even examining the quality of your posture. We've gotten a lot of feedback on calories at Whoop, and we've been investigating everything about the science of tracking calories at Whoop. We're excited to be partnering with Pinoy to have the opportunity to provide our members the most accurate data available in the future. Without further ado, here's Panos. All right. Panos, thanks for coming on the Whoop Podcast. <laughs> it's great to be here. Thanks so much. So we are recording this in Boston uh, in the Whoop headquarters. We're very excited to have Pnoe and Whoop as partners. And I think the technology you've built is really fascinating. This is a space that people talk about all the time uh, around cal- calorie expenditure, cardiometabolic analysis. And I have a feeling that most people actually don't know what the hell they're talking about. And I have a feeling that you also really do know what you're talking about. So I'm, I'm, excited. That's right. <laughs> I'm excited to dive into it. Let's start by just, just summarize quickly. What is Pnoe doing? Cool. Yeah. So um, Pnoe is a cardiometabolic analyzer. Uh, so let me just start by explaining what cardiometabolic analysis is. Cardiometabolic analyzer is a device that analyzes your breath. It analyzes how much oxygen your body is consuming how much carbon dioxide it is producing, along with 12 other biomarkers in your breath. And based on that analysis, it scans the three most important physiological uh, f- physiological systems in your body, uh, your metabolism, your heart function, and your pulmonary function. Uh, in simple words, cardiometabolic analysis will tell you in the most efficient and accurate way how your metabolism is working, that is, how many calories you're burning, how many fats you're burning, how many carbohydrates you're burning. It can also tell you if you have a cardiovascular disease and can also tell you if a respiratory disease. Um, it is what elite athletes use as the basis for developing diet plans and workout plans. 
and it's also a very valuable tool in the world of a cardiologist or a pulmonary expert. And so the question that most people have at this point is, okay, if this is such a foundational assessment that is so important and so holistic, why isn't everyone doing it? Right. And and, and the question and, and the answer to that question is actually simple. First of all, uh, until today, cardiometabolic analyzers were very expensive. You needed to spend anywhere between forty thousand and sixty thousand dollars to buy a clinical grade cardiometabolic analyzer. Until you guys came along. Until we exactly <laughs> until we came along. Also, they were pretty big. Right. Uh, you needed a cart to move them around, and that's why a lot of people are familiar with the term metabolic cart. Yeah. It comes from the fact that you actually needed a cart right. to move the device around. Uh, they were very difficult to operate, like a lot of training required uh, by the practitioners. And then probably most importantly, no device until today was uh, providing the practitioner with any sort of support in translating data from raw cardiometabolic information into actionable diet and workout recommendations or diagnosis. And that brings me to my next point, which is, why is Pnoe unique? In Pnoe, we've built the world's first cardiometabolic analyzer that is 10x cheaper compared to competition, but still delivers medical-grade accuracy. It is portable enough that you can put it in a backpack and take it anywhere you go and test outside. Uh, simple to use that you only need a smartphone to operate it. And then, most importantly, it comes with a data interpretation service that allows any practitioner in the clinical or fitness world uh, to translate cardiometabolic data and acquire uh, uh, diet and workout recommendations without the skills or time needed to analyze cardiometabolic information, which, by the way, uh, is notorious in the clinical world for being probably one of the most intricate data sets to analyze. Uh, so that's a summary of yeah, what uh, cardiometabolic uh, cardi analysis and, 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 and why Pno is unique. Why Pno is unique. And, and paint a picture for our audience. Like what, what does this look like when you're using it? Sure. So um, you're basically exercising on a treadmill uh, with a mask connected on your face. We're basically analyzing uh, all of the gas exchange that is happening in your body through your mouth and nose. Um, and uh, we're analyzing how much oxygen you're consuming, how much carbon dioxide you're producing, your breathing frequency, your tidal volume, and many, many other things on a breath-by-breath -breath basis. That means on every breath cycle. Uh, the test is a 10-minute test uh, of uh, increasing intensity. Uh, you get on a treadmill or a stationary bicycle, uh, you wear the mask, and then intensity increases, until either you reach a specific point, that's the so-called submaximal test, or you go into your maximum, like until failure, which is the maximal test. Uh, so this is how uh, what the cardiometabolic test looks like. So explain the maximal test in a little more detail. I've seen this happening in our office now quite a bit. Yeah. So maximal test is basically uh, continuing to increase the intensity until the person just can't go anymore. So if you're on a treadmill, you're starting at a certain mile per hour mm -hmm. and uh, and at what cadence are you increasing that? So it, now we're going into the discussion around the protocol. Yeah. Uh, and there are a couple of different protocols that you can follow if you're doing a cardiometabolic test. Uh, there is the so-called RAM test where you're increasing intensity um, every 30 seconds or every 60 seconds. Uh, the amount by which you're increasing the intensity depends on the fitness level of the person. So there are recommendations, you know, based on how fit you are, how rapidly you should be increasing the intensity. Uh, so that's one type of testing, the RAMP testing. And then there's the step test or metabolic efficiency test where uh, you're basically keeping the person at a specific intensity for longer periods of time. So uh, maybe five or seven minutes per step. Uh, and there's different things that we analyze in, in, in both tests. Okay. So let's, let's break that down. What, uh, in a test where you're going, uh, you're just increasing, mm -hmm. right? What are some of the, the, the key readouts that Pinoe is going to provide to an, a user? So what we basically determine through a ramp test, uh, are the so-called thresholds in a person's physiology. So, uh, you get the VT1 and VT2 first and second ventilatory thresholds. 
these are the thresholds that we use in order to uh, develop training zones for a person. Uh, and these are the thresholds that ultimately become the basis for a person's cardiovascular training. Uh, on the other hand, uh, when you're doing the step test, uh, you are actually able to um, measure a person's substrate utilization. Uh, that means uh, what is the fuel consumption of the person in terms of caloric expenditure in different intensities, but also what is the substrate that the person is using at these different intensities. Uh, that means what is the breakdown between fats and carbohydrates uh, in different intensities. So, for example, if you have a triathlete that wants to understand how many carbohydrates his body is using at different intensities in order to pace his nutrition during the race, uh, he would need to do a step test and measure his substrate utilization in different intensities. Uh, another incredibly important metric that you can measure through a step test is uh, the so-called mechanical efficiency. Mechanical efficiency is the ratio between your mechanical power output over your metabolic power output. So think, for example, your car, right? Your car is transforming energy, which is, uh, which is found in a chemical form, and the gas you put in, into mechanical propulsion. Mechanical propulsion is basically movement going from point A to point B. Um, pretty much the same concept applies in the human body, right? Because you have uh, energy found in chemical form in the nutrients that you consume, uh, basically the fats and carbohydrates that you have in your body. Uh, you're burning that fuel, uh, and you're burning that fuel in order to generate energy that will lead your body to go from point A to point B. So you can measure your mechanical propulsion uh, if you're on a bicycle, for example, you actually measure the watts. That's mechanical propulsion. Sure. Uh, you can use a device uh, in order to measure power output when you're running. Uh, and so that is the numerator of your ratio. And then in the denominator, what you have is the energy expenditure, the amount of chemical energy that your body used in order to generate that amount of mechanical pro propulsion. So you want to generate as much power as you can with the least cost. Is that one way to think about it? And that depends on who you're talking to. Okay. And that brings me to a very important to the very important point about mechanical efficiency. So sure. if you're talking if you're talking to an athlete, any type of athlete, especially an endurance athlete, uh, you are correct. Right. You want to be as efficient as possible. Why? Because you want to uh, get as much movement as possible for uh, the least amount of uh, energy consumption. Now, would the test potentially jeopardize the readout here? So a runner, for example, is going to be much more mechanically efficient at running than, say, if you got a cyclist and put him on a treadmill. Absolutely. So that's where... Form is an incredibly big okay, contributor. Um, so so if, you were, if you did this test for... Uh, let's say two people who have the same exact mechanical efficiency, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But they happen to be doing protocols in a case where one person's doing something that they're less Absolutely. comfortable with. That is going to be an incredibly big contributor. So one takeaway here is if you're, if you're doing the Pinoe test, you want to make sure you're doing uh, a protocol that you're pretty familiar with, right? Is that fair to say? Absolutely. And obviously, if you're a triathlete, then you're doing both running and cycling. Uh, you want to measure how your body is responding in both circumstances right. because you That's might... That's really be, interesting yeah, yeah. too, yeah. Um, so, as I said, in the case of an athlete, yes, you're looking at efficiency and you want to maximize efficiency. Now, uh, mechanical efficiency... So, again, just to, just to, mm -hmm. to confirm that for our audience here, right? You want to make sure... You want to have a high ratio. Exactly. You want the, the power to the expenditure to be high. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. What's an example where you where you actually might not want it to be high? So let's take weight loss, for example. Okay. That's yeah. what I thought. And the reality is that there are several recent studies that uh, came to light very recently that show that mechanical efficiency is actually one of the biggest reasons why uh, most people can't lose weight. So when... Isn't that interesting? Yeah. When our body goes into a, a state of caloric restriction, uh, basically cutting calories uh, on a daily basis, and you combine that with uh, excessive amounts of cardio, what's going to happen to your muscular efficiency is going to go up. What that means is that every step that you take is going to uh, 
burn fewer calories. So think that initially, before you went on a weight loss intervention, you were burning one calorie per step. That's actually a lot, but you know, let's uh, let's make up the numbers. Okay. And then you go on a three-month diet, which is pretty intense, and afterwards you're burning 0.8 calories per step. Interesting. That yeah. means your efficiency went up. Is that something that you want? Absolutely not. Right. And uh, there are several studies that have shown that the reason why most people can't lose weight is not because they have some sort of pathological lack of willpower to maintain discipline. It's because their efficiency went up. As a result, they are not burning as many calories as they used to. As a result, the caloric deficit that they're implementing today in their lives is not enough in order to lead to further weight loss. Um, we actually just yesterday put out a blog post about The Biggest Loser. Are you familiar with the show? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, participants underwent a very intense um, weight loss intervention, like crash diets, uh, they cut calories by you know crazy amounts, and they were able to shed incredible incredible amounts of weight during the uh, during the uh, program. However, nearly everyone regained the weight after the show, uh, and that sparked the interest of uh, of uh, scientists who looked at their metabolism, and they actually found out that because of the uh, because of the acute nature of the intervention, people were burning. Uh, significantly fewer calories compared to what it was expected for their size, gender, and age. And as a result, for these people now, eating normally means weight gain because their metabolism has dropped. They're burning fewer calories for everything that they do. In order to maintain their weight, they need to be always eating significantly less. They need to be restricting their eating. And in order for them to lose weight, they need to go into absurdly low levels of caloric intake, which is almost impossible. So efficiency is an incredibly important thing. That's so cool. Both for an athlete and for someone who wants to lose weight. And this is the real value of metabolic analysis and weight loss, understanding if the type of intervention you're doing, for example, the type of workout that you're doing in combination type of diet that you're doing is actually leading your body to metabolic adaptations that you don't want to have there. Because what's very important is that, which is was actually shown in the Biggest Loser um, study that was done after the show, and has also been shown in several other peer-reviewed articles, is that these metabolic adaptations are long-lasting and very hard to undo. So once you get your body into a state of reduced uh, caloric expenditure, that's not gonna go away easily. And even if you regain weight, still, in many cases, your metabolism will remain in a dormant state. Uh, there's so many interesting ways to take that. So let's start just with this idea that if you're trying to lose weight, you actually want to not be calorie efficient. Absolutely. Right? That, that as a core concept seems pretty fundamental. Yeah. I bet you if you talk to most people who are trying to lose weight, they, mm-hmm. they're not aware of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Because it actually does, it doesn't sound that good. Yeah. Yeah. You want to be inefficient. Yeah. I'm also thinking about different, um, you know, different athletes who you can obviously tell are on one side of the spectrum or the other. Uh, I forget the, Mark, what was the boxer's name? The really heavy set guy. Yeah. Look that up. So there, there, there was this boxer and Mark's going to pull the name of it. I mean, if you look at this guy, he just did not look like a professional boxer and he got subbed in last minute to fight the, um, the heavyweight champion and he won and on one side you've got this guy who's 250 pounds of just sheer muscle and on the other side of it you've andy ruiz, andy ruiz. so andy ruiz uh and who did he beat remind me it, 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 but it was it was pretty amazing because so this guy andy andy ruiz I, I mean i've never seen a boxer who looked like this he looked like a, a contestant on the biggest loser honestly yeah. Yeah. and he yet he beats this guy who you know is sheer muscle in in yeah, boxing yeah andy ruiz beats anthony joshua andrew ruiz is this guy who's like doesn't look fit at all uh anthony joshua's all muscle heavyweight champion and loses and that's probably an example where you have a guy who's a really talented athlete 
but uh, Andy Ruiz, but did he, he blow up? He's in, calorie inefficient, right? I mean, it, that could be one factor that yeah. led to him losing. No, but, no. So this guy won. No, I mean, uh, 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 I'm talking about the person who lost. Like, oh sure, yeah. So he, he's very calorie efficient, right? If you have an athlete who's super cut and does, you know, four or five percent body fat or whatever, isn't it highly likely that you are calorie efficient or not? Not necessarily. So you might be low in body fat, but you might be because uh, body fat is uh, determined by several other factors. But still, as a person, your muscles might be both inefficient or efficient like it's 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 not a direct correlation there um but to answer your question about athletes who are unexpectedly efficient or inefficient yeah sure uh we see that every day like yeah, for right. example i think crossfit is probably the most interesting case because it's uh it's a sport where people have traditionally focused on doing excessive amounts of uh very explosive movements uh, excessive amounts of weightlifting, which will lead a person to ha- to be more of a type two muscle fiber person, and that makes you more inefficient. Uh, and they uh, usually tend to um, overlook and neglect the amount of uh, car- uh, cardiovascular and low intensity training that they should be doing, which will ultimately lead you to become more efficient. And uh, so you can have. Uh, you you can have both worlds in a specific calorie a specific caloric inefficiency that's going to lead towards you burning more calories yes, to correct. do the same amount of work correct which yeah. for someone who's trying to get really cut yeah or bodybuild yeah or you know the yeah. vanity look yeah it's, it's actually a good thing it's actually a good thing but it might not be a good thing if you want to win the race right yeah yeah mm-hmm. no, i think th- and by the way, you don't hear people talk about this stuff all that often. Which I, I mean, this yeah, to me it's very fundamental. So fundamental. It's 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 the most fundamental thing. If 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 if, uh, if anyone wants to look that up, it's the concept of adaptive thermogenesis. This is the scientific term, and we'll include some show notes on that. Yeah. Uh, so um, basically, it's the concept of how efficient your body is in transforming energy found in chemical form into mechanical propulsion which is what we do all day, every day. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty fundamental. Yeah. Okay, so the next question, I just want to focus on this concept of uh, caloric efficiency for a second. Mm-hmm. Let's say that you do the PNOE test mm-hmm. and you find out that you're, uh, caloric, you're caloric efficient, mm-hmm. right? And you want to lose weight. And, and you want to like, lose weight. Oh, what do I do about How it? How do you change that? So there's a couple of things which are... Uh, important when it comes to driving efficiency. So, um, and, you know, it, it helps a lot to see that from the perspective of a person that ended up being efficient. So, literature has shown that uh, what's going to lead to increased efficiency is uh, caloric restriction. So, people that have been restricting uh, their diet have tried to lose weight multiple times and haven't been able to do so. Uh, tend to be more efficient. Also, excessive amounts of uh, cardio training without complementing it with the adequate amount of strength training will also lead you to be more efficient. And so, uh, in our uh, so, sorry, just to, to spend a second on that, mm-hmm. if you if you let's say run and cycle a lot, yeah, but you never weightlift, you will most likely be efficient because your body is getting trained to conduct a movement which is perpetual, uh, takes place over long periods of time, right, and is uh, it's more aerobic, and as a result, it will try to adapt to that type of movement, right. And in that case, you're actually training your body not to to lose weight as quickly correct in in yeah ultimately this is what happens so for so so for someone listening who only does cardio sports yeah right one mm-hmm. learning from this and it, by the way you're trying to lose weight yeah just to be yeah, clear yeah you only do cardio sports uh or activities and you're trying to lose weight mm-hmm. maybe introduce weightlifting absolutely what, what i always like to say is that at the end of the day weight loss starts under the squad rack because love that. yeah it's 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 basically where we build the muscle mass which and 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 the low efficiency that is required yeah, right. for our body to be burning calories uh on a daily basis throughout the day at a significant level okay and, and that's why you see that every sustainable weight loss intervention has some sort of weightlifting component in it 
which is pretty substantial. Now, what about uh, the diet side of this, right? We know that all calories aren't created equal. What do you mean by that? Because that's, that, that, that's, a, that's a controversial statement. Well, okay. If you talk to someone who's on the keto diet, for example, mm-hmm. they'll tell you the fact that they ate nothing but meat and vegetables today mm-hmm. and I had a bagel with my you know, mm-hmm. eggs and bacon mm-hmm. means that even though we consume the same calories, those calories are going to have a, a different effect on my body. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I want to be clear. Mm-hmm. I, I know very little about nutrition and I'm not, a, I'm not endorsing any diets or the yeah, keto yeah, yeah. diet, mm-hmm. but like that's what they, they would say. So yeah. what's your rebuttal to that, which I imagine is a good one? Yes. So it's not a personal rebuttal. I would, <laughs> I would direct these people to a very recent study that was done at Stanford, uh, which basically aimed to um, clear the misinformation that exists in uh, the debate between the different types <laughs> right. of diets. Uh, they actually took uh, people uh, on a low-carb diet. They, 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 they divided their group into two categories. One group went to, uh, they went ahead and did a low-carb diet. The other group did a high-fat diet. Uh, and what ended up happening was that both groups uh, ended up losing pretty much the same amount of weight. Uh, calories are equal in the sense that if you create a caloric deficit of a specific amount, then your body's going to lose pretty much the same amount of weight. Um, what is better for you? That is a much broader question. It has to do with uh, your psychological adherence to a diet. You might prefer to be eating more carbs than less carbs. And there are so many other factors that come into play. But when it comes to judging how much weight you're going to lose, it is only a matter of how many calories went in and how many calories went out. And would you, and, and that remains true no matter what your activities are? No, obviously activity is very relevant because as I said, it's all a matter of calories in versus calories out. So how many calories you're ingesting versus how many calories you're burning. Activity. Oh, understood. I just, I mean, to be very, very clear about it, right? Like if you, um, if you consume uh, nothing but ice cream versus nothing but meat, just Mm -hmm. to to frame this in a very uh, extreme way. And you do the same exact activities in mm-hmm. each case. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're saying you'll have the same net weight loss. Now we we obviously go into the specifics of how much protein you're you're, you're eating, and as a result, what is your ability to maintain muscle mass sure. during during the intervention. But provided that you know you're you're, you're consuming the right amounts of uh, micronutrients and the right macros in the diet in order to you know sustain uh, a healthy state, then you should obviously lose the same amount of weight in both cases. So it sounds like you're probably someone who's skeptical. Uh, of all these different diets that are out there. Oh, absolutely. And and, and <laughs> it's not a matter of being personally skeptical. Uh, just, as I said, it has been proven. Yeah, yeah. It, it, there is no debate around that anymore. Yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously, there's, there, there's um, uh, a big reason for a lot of people out there to be uh, advertising and advocating for a specific diet because uh, they have some sort of financial interest. But at the end of the day, people should know that it has been proven that uh, a low-carb diet versus a low-fat diet, um, provided, of course, that we are within reasonable boundaries of macronutrients, will pretty much yield the same weight loss uh, result. Got it. And or what do you think of intermittent fasting? Uh, intermittent fasting is um, more of a psychological strategy um, in the sense that, you know, again, the principle idea in losing weight is creating a caloric deficit during the day. So you got to figure out a way to cut calories. Yeah. And uh, what has worked for a lot of people is that if they skip a meal, they end up uh, consuming less calories. Consuming less calories. Uh, there is some literature out there that suggests that staying in a fasted state has specific health benefits, but... Uh, you know, but you're skeptical. But, but obviously, like to make a solid statement around uh, such things, you need to do 
so much studying and there that, that there has to be so many uh, review meta-analysis studies in order to be sure around a specific statement that I think what's fair to say at this point is that intermittent fasting for some people is a great psychological strategy to cut calories. Uh, do I like doing it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, sometimes... You personally do it. Sometimes, yes. Uh, because sometimes I wake up and uh, I want to do some cardio activity in the morning and it just doesn't suit me well to have yogurt with oats. Sure. However, there are cases where I weight train in the morning and I need to fuel up before I go and I lift heavy. So uh, in these cases, it makes tons of sense to eat. Um, another important piece of information is that there was some recent research that came to light that shows that uh, it actually makes a lot of, uh, it's actually pretty valuable for people um, uh, who are older uh, to be eating protein before they go to bed and right after they wake up because uh, during sleep uh, is uh, when we shed most of the muscle that we've built because uh, our body goes into a, a negative uh, uh basically it's the uh, muscle deterioration process the muscle deterioration window if you like and so uh there was some research that showed that it's actually valuable in some cases to be eating protein before uh you go to bed and right after you wake up so there's pretty much you know a lot of debate around you know what's good and what's bad but at the end of the day the key drivers in someone's ability to lose weight or or attain better performance uh, is actually, you know, getting the basics right, which is uh, eating the right amount of calories, eating the uh, right macronutrient distribution, and then obviously doing the right type of training. Now, how would uh, Pnoe tell you that uh, you should eat a certain number of calories in a day? So we measure your basic metabolic rate, and then uh, we also measure your caloric expenditure in different uh, states of activity. Sure. And that's how we can uh, very accurately tell you how many calories you should be eating. Now, the uh, interesting... So how many calories should you eat a day? Personally? Yeah. Uh, I'm around 2.5 and 2.6 thousand calories. The days that I uh, So 2,500 to 2,600. Correct, yeah. And does that... And for you when, you, when you say that, that's like to stay even yeah correct yeah right you're yeah. not trying to gain weight you're not trying to lose correct weight. yeah if i want to go on a, uh, on a on a mild weight loss uh process i would need to drop down to around 2000 calories uh 2000 to 2100 and uh um yeah uh but um again the very interesting application which uh a lot of people have looked into is you know how you can actually calibrate a wearable based on pinoe information and, well, that's uh, a good whoop tie-in right there. Yes, exactly. So, um, obviously, uh, you can imagine that uh, I can test you with a, uh, with a cardiometabolic analyzer and I can see how many calories you're burning in different intensities, but then I don't know exactly what is happening during the day because you might be engaging in different types of activity and different level, uh, a level of activity. Uh, throughout the day and the only way to keep track of that is by using some sort of wearable device some sort of activity tracker and um, the reality is that activity trackers today do provide you with an estimation of your calories however that estimation is not very accurate uh, there was a recent study done at Stanford again which basically uh, measured the accuracy of commercially available uh, wearables when it comes to measuring calories, well, I think I think wearables are wildly inaccurate. Obviously, as, as someone who's been developing one, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, part of what we pride ourselves on here is being really accurate. Mm -hmm. And so, I think what we're excited about in partnering with Pinoe is how we can potentially um, provide an additional service for Whoop members mm -hmm. to get calibrated with the Pinoe technology. Correct. Yeah. And then, in turn, have their whoop calorie analysis be that much more accurate, that much more prescriptive. Absolutely, and 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 I think this is where uh, th this is the great window of opportunity for cardiometabolic analysis to become uh, a truly impactful um, source of information for the everyday person. Yep. No, I, I completely agree. So, explain to people how uh, Whoop and Pinoe are going to uh, 
be able to use this together. So the whole idea is that uh, you wear Whoop when you're doing the Pnoe test. And, uh, well, hopefully you are with 24 seven, but no, no, no. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The yeah, test. exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, so, so it's, uh, so you calibrate your whoop when you're doing the Pnoe test. Yes, exactly. Uh, by, uh, basically measuring, uh, how your body is responding from a cardiometabolic perspective when you're wearing Pnoe. And then at the same time, uh, whoop is recording your movement and your heart rate data. And by merging the two, uh, data streams, we're actually able to calibrate WHOOP based on your personal cardiometabolic profile. Yeah, and I'm set up to do this, I think, next week or in a couple weeks. So I'm excited to do it personally. Yeah. yeah. Uh, You know, I think think what you've built is really, uh, really amazing. And for us, you know, we're always on the lookout for other technology that is super accurate comes from a position of research and science which obviously yours does i mean the way you talk about this stuff is obviously very informed and the reality is there's just a lot of stuff out there that's not grounded at all in science it's not grounded in research it's snake oil and and it's selling you know i think it's selling something that's maybe easy to explain but is not um, actually going to help people improve their lives or you know achieve their goals so this idea that by better understanding your breath, which is really, I think, the core of, yeah. of Pinoe, um, you can you can unlock these secrets about caloric expenditure and efficiency. And uh, I mean, we haven't gotten into a couple of the other pieces too, right? Cardiovascular disease detection. Yeah. So, so how, how will uh, that work? So um, uh, first of all, cardiovascular disease, the most expensive uh, disease in the states and the developed world also claims it only that, kills like thirty percent of America. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> it's uh, really problematic. Yeah, it's 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 the most expensive and the most deadly disease, uh, not just in the states in the developed world in general. Uh, you're, as I said, much more likely to die of cardiovascular disease than you are to die of cancer or you know pretty much any other thing. Uh, and, and so, how and, does and, the how will the test signal that? that you may be at risk. So uh, here's the deal. Um, 85% of cases of cardio- cardiovascular disease uh, are categorized as ischemic heart disease. Ischemic heart disease is basically um, there's a blockage in one of the uh, arteries of the heart, which ultimately leads to a heart attack. We get heart attacks because there's a blockage in, in, in the heart. Um, and so uh, there comes the question, how do we actually scan for cardiovascular disease? How do we actually scan for ischemic heart disease? And there are a couple of methods that are uh, known to science at this point. Uh, What most people are familiar with is ECG stress testing, which is basically you go on the treadmill, much like you would do with Pnoe, but instead of wearing the mask, you have these electrodes which are connected uh, on your chest. And what we measure with this is the electrical signal of the heart as intensity increases. Um, The big problem with ECG is that it's 50% accurate. So sensitivity and specificity is 50%, approximately. That means that you might have a blockage in the heart, and it's a coin flip uh, whether the system is going to pick it up. And as a result, there are uh, official statements by health organizations that say that it doesn't really make sense to, make, to, to be screening people uh, with, uh, with ECG. Um, and uh, the, other, uh, the other method that is uh, widely used is nuclear imaging. This is uh, the so-called nuclear stress testing. It is much more accurate, has sensitivity of approximately 90%. Uh, but the big problem there is that we're talking about an assessment that costs around $5,000. Uh, they will inject you with radiation. Uh, and uh, as a result, there is a likelihood of developing cancer because of, uh, because of the examination. And in general, it's a very uh, intricate and, 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 and expensive and difficult Um, examination. And obviously you have some other methods like ultrasound, uh, which require a special doctor to monitor the exam. So uh, if you look at the current uh, uh, spectrum of available uh, technologies and methods, they all have significant drawbacks. Either they're very difficult or expensive, or they are inaccurate in the case of ECG. Now, the only assessment that has been shown to have uh, sensitivity very close to that of nuclear stress testing and is easy to conduct is cardiometabolic analysis. And that is why there's a very huge trend today in Europe where cardiologists are using 
cardiometabolic testing more and more in order to detect ischemic heart disease. Um, the reason why it hasn't picked up in the States, unfortunately, is because of how the healthcare system is structured. Uh, it's all about reimbursement in the United States. And because uh, a hospital is going to get reimbursed $5,000, uh, for nuclear stress testing versus two hundred dollars for cardiometabolic testing, it's pretty much uh, a yeah, no-brainer. The wrong for, incentive structure. Eg exactly, exactly. But on the other side of the Atlantic, um, uh, cardiometabolic testing has gained a lot of traction uh, when it comes to. So, in the actual test, yeah. what shows up? So, uh, what we're looking at uh, when we're screening for ischemic heart disease is basically your VO two. In relationship with work rate so how your oxygen consumption is increasing as your mechanical power output on a cycle ergometer on a stationary bicycle is increasing uh, think that the heart the job of your heart is to pump oxygen rich blood to the working muscles right yep um, if there is a blockage in the heart uh, the heart is a muscle if there is a blockage in the heart after a certain point, the heart will not get enough blood. As a result, it will not be able to perform its work, its job of providing your muscles with oxygen-rich blood. So what's yep. gonna so what's gonna happen is that intensity on the bicycle is gonna go up because that thing is programmed to you know increase intensity every one minute or every thirty seconds. But after a certain point, when um, ischemia, uh, basically uh, uh, provision of blood in the heart stops that your oxygen uptake is going to drop or plateau. That's one indication. The other indication that will have to happen concurrently is your so-called O2 pulse. This is how much oxygen you're consuming per heartbeat will also plateau or drop. Combine these two um, indicators with certain other uh, biomarkers, which are uh, a little bit more complicated for this discussion, can... Uh, detect ischemic heart disease with roughly 90% sensitivity. Now, the other very important application of cardiometabolic analysis is the so-called dif differential diagnosis in the case of chest pain. So chest pain is one of the most uh, um, frequent symptoms in primary care, uh, not just in the United States, in the developed world in general. So people show up in primary care with chest pain. And uh, because most doctors are familiar with ECG stress testing, they're going to put you on the ECG. They're going to most likely not detect anything wrong with your heart, and they're going to send you back home. When in fact, you might have a cardiovascular problem or you might have a pulmonary problem. So the absolute gold standard for triaging between cardiovascular or pulmonary limitations in people that show up with chest pain and angina is cardiometabolic analysis. So the beauty of this assessment is that you just need 10 minutes on a treadmill to get all of the information you need to build a diet plan, all of the information you need to get a workout plan, but also screen for all of the conditions that account for roughly 90% of healthcare expenses today. And you can do that using just a treadmill. It's pretty amazing, man. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the other thing that you know, is a takeaway for me in this conversation is just how important breathing is. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like your breath. Yeah. It, it To me, it doesn't seem like something that, you know, when people talk about health, they're often talking about buckets of like exercise and activity and sleep and nutrition. And, you know, maybe there's a couple other things, but people don't often add breath to that list of things. And it's so fundamental, isn't it? It is. It is. And, and, and the other very interesting application that is starting to pick up for us uh, is posture assessment. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So uh, if you think about it, like uh, chiropractors... Cell phones are ru ruining posture. I, I, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I don't <laughs> think people fully appreciate how yeah. like much worse our generation's posture yeah, might yeah, be than yeah, other yeah, generations. Especially in the neck. Like, you know, yeah, because cause you yeah, see people yeah, pivoted yeah. forwards exactly, exactly. staring at their cell phone. Yeah. But, uh, you know, when it comes to lower back pain and uh, uh, myoskeletal problems and body imbalances, uh, breath is actually a very, very important indicator because um, efficient breathing means good bowel control, means engagement of your abdomen, and as a result means uh, good posture. That's why um, for a lot of physical therapists and chiropractors, one of the most basic things is 
assessing how efficient a person's breathing is. But then the big question that arises is how are we able to objectively quantify whether a person's breath is efficient? Uh, and turns out that if you look at your CO2, your end tidal CO2 in your breath and your breathing frequency, end tidal CO2 is uh, the highest concentration of CO2 during exhalation. Interesting. Uh, yeah, so if you look at end tidal CO2 and and uh, uh, breathing frequency, these two happen to be uh, two of the strongest predictors of whether a person is going to develop uh, myoskeletal problems like lower back pain. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Uh, and this comes up in the test as well. Yeah, exactly. So, so one-stop shop. One-stop shop for everything. And that's really the vision of the company because, you know, I, 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 as you have understood, like cardiometabolic analysis is widely accepted as uh, one of the most, if not the most holistic assessment, a person, clinical grade assessment that a person can do outside of a hospital. And it can and it should be the health assessment of the future. And our job here is by making, by making it accessible, uh, by uh, hardware that is easy to use and a service that makes people's lives easier. Uh, we want to make that happen. Well, look, a lot of our partnership together also is to, um, you know, try to expand your market and, and yeah. get WHOOP members, uh, mm -hmm. you know, to do these tests because I think it's it's super important. It's super interesting. Uh, you can tell I find this whole thing, uh, whole thing really fascinating. Uh, let me ask you this. Is someone who okay? Well, wait a second. If you if you took this test, uh, if you were wearing a Pinoy when you were meditating versus exercising, mm -hmm. how how might the actual just pure breathing data mm -hmm. look uh, different? I mean, obviously there's the heart rate stuff and all that that's going to be very different. But in terms of the things that you're talking about, in terms of the efficiency of your breath, might might someone actually be I guess what I'm getting at is can you train yourself to be good not just at a uh, a peak state or a high performance state, which would be, say, exercise, but what if I want to be able to figure out how I can be as optimal as possible sitting at my desk? Yeah, th that's actually a concept that uh, – are you familiar with Brian McKenzie? Uh, he's uh, one of the most famous breath coaches uh, in this country. I think he, I've heard of him. Yeah, I, so, 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 so he, he does a lot of work with us as well. He has been using Pinoy for quite some time now to test different protocols. And uh, his work and uh, the work of other people have shown that there are definitely, a, you know, d many different exercises, breathing exercises that a person can do in order to improve his breathing and as a result his overall health his posture his um, his mind state both in uh, uh, you know both when uh, the person is sitting uh, in his desk but also when the person is exercising yeah I, I bring this up because I started meditating maybe like four or five years ago mm -hmm. and it I, I know it's just fundamentally changed my body yeah and changed yeah. my mind yeah and yet I would love to actually be able to understand some of the measurements associated with that. And I imagine... Put up no yawn. <laughs> well, yeah. of course I'm yeah. going to. But it would, it, what I'm wondering is if I had taken the Pnoe test at rest mm -hmm. or even during exercise mm -hmm. before having fallen in love with meditation um, uh, versus now... Mm -hmm. Like what? What sorts of things might uh, yeah? So, so might the, I have seen? Yeah. So the things that we would look at in order to assess yeah, uh, the, the delta, yeah, yeah, the delta in in, in in physiology would be, first of all, certainly uh, entitled CO two. So how much CO two are you able to clear per breathing cycle? Uh, breathing frequency uh, has your breathing frequency uh, um, gone down? Uh, and then tidal volume, are you able to exchange? Uh, greater amounts, uh, a, a greater volume of air between your lungs and the environment per breathing cycle. Um, so these are just some things that we would look at in order to assess whether your breathing is uh, is, is heading towards uh, improvement. And tidal CO2, we talked about that. Breathing frequency, that makes a lot of sense because obviously mm -hmm. if you can feel the same way or accomplish the same things with less breath, Correct, your body's yeah. behaving more mm -hmm. efficiently, mm -hmm. your heart's mm -hmm. performing mm -hmm. its mission mm -hmm. uh, more effectively. Tidal volume, explain that one a little more. Tidal volume is how much volume of air we can exchange between our lungs and the environment per breathing cycle. So, um, so a smoker... Right. Yeah, it's gonna have. You it's know, gonna have a bad. Tidal it's gonna volume. have. A, yeah, exactly. 
um, someone who is not a smoker but is breathing incorrectly because he's breathing with his chest and not with his belly. Uh, so, you know, uh, doing you yeah. know, uh, big, deep breaths, which basically fill up the entire body, can also have reduced tidal volume. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. So, uh, tidal volume is also a very, very important metric to see uh, t- t- uh, based on which we can assess the breathing efficacy of a person. Now, if you took someone um, like Brian, the the, mm-hmm. the breath coach, mm-hmm. and let's pretend for a second that he he was mostly focused on breathing. He wasn't big mm-hmm. on exercising, mm-hmm. right? Are there ways that he might stand out at rest in, in your test? Like, let's just say you do the test and the person's mostly at rest or they're just doing mm-hmm. something light mm-hmm. versus, uh, you know sprinting up the treadmill mm-hmm. and then they do the maximal test mm-hmm. i could imagine in the maximal test there's a lot of readouts where uh someone who's purely focused on breathing in their day-to-day doesn't perform as well but potentially looks good at rest or would would that would the 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 training of getting better at breathing actually apply to both tests good question so is a person who's a bad breather at rest uh, could that person be a good breather during exercise? Yeah, or vice versa. It, or vice versa. Generally, no. Okay. If a person is a bad breather at rest, he will definitely not go, not do a good job when he's expected to breathe well under physical stress. Well, let's flip it because I think I'm curious. Can you be someone who's maybe not cardiovascularly fit, right? Mm-hmm. But be a good breather at rest. You could, you could, because, yeah. um, and look, potentially even look better than someone who is cardiovascularly fit at rest. Yeah. So for example, you might have a person who is breathing well at rest, Yeah. but is very poor, uh, when it comes to, uh, cardiovascular training, just uh, based on fitness level, based on fitness level. Uh, based on the type of muscles. And their heart, probably, yeah. right? Yeah. You guys so, train your heart, too. Y- correct, correct. So um, you should think that there are three different gears when it comes to our body. The first gear is uh, the lungs, second gear is the heart, third gear is the muscles. So when we're, at, when we're performing, and, and, and this is a schematic that was uh, developed by Professor Wasserman, Wasserman was the guy that uh, did most of the work in cardiometabolic analysis and uh, developed this schematic which very eloquently describes the uh, interplay between the different physiological mechanisms in the body. So when you're trying to understand how a body is performing and whether the body is performing well, it's all, it, it, it is all, always helpful to have these gears in mind because you understand that it's three gears working sequentially. So if something is failing in the body, if your body's failing, it could be any combination sure. of the three. So yes, you might be a great breather at rest uh, because you've done meditation, because this is how you were born, because like you're sure. a calm person, yeah, whatever. Right, right, right. But then um, you have very untrained mitochondria. And then the third wheel, which is muscles, um, ends up giving up when you start to run. Yeah. You might have a pulmonary limitation. You might have asthma. Or you might have some sort of cardiovascular problem or your heart might not be well-trained because you never jogged. So, or it could be any combination of the two. So, um, that's, and, and, and that's, I would say, one of the other, it's the other important point about cardiometabolic analysis that there, it is able to discern what is, actually the problem and what is the limiting factor yeah the 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 thing i was thinking about while you were describing that so you've got lungs heart and muscle when i play squash competitively now Mm -hmm. squash is a very cardiovascular sport but it requires a lot of lunging when the season first begins you have this situation where your um your lungs will go but your legs uh, will be able to Mm -hmm. keep playing through a match mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you just get to a point where you're winded and you can't keep going. Exactly. And, and for example, that that's something that uh, uh, you're able to tell 
by integrating Pinoe with Moxie. Moxie is another company we work with sure. that does muscle oxygenation. So it actually so that's m- an example yeah, where your yeah. your your muscles aren't being exactly oxygenated, exactly. And that's why they're yeah. you know sore yeah. and yeah. That like. that th- th- this is what you would need in order to uh, identify if the limitation is on a muscular level versus on a cardiorespiratory level. Now, the flip of it is later in the season, once my lungs have gotten trained up a little yeah. bit. The limitation <laughs> starts to be oxygen delivering the muscles. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And so, uh, it's, and then you're playing with heavy legs. Mm-hmm. But from a pure strain standpoint, in terms of what WHOOP measures, mm-hmm. it's easier to have a high strain in the latter case because you're able to you're able it's easier to push your body when your lungs are still there than it is when your legs go at least in a sport like squash yes the point yes ends yes sooner, correct correct right? correct yeah uh, mm-hmm. so anyway it's, this is all this is all very integrated now is there anything in the the pinoe test that we haven't touched on i, I feel like we've we, touched on a million things in yeah it, so. i think we've covered most of it now uh vo2 max and anaerobic threshold yeah give a quick spiel on what's important about those so these are just two metrics that we derive from a cardiometabolic test. Anaerobic they're threshold. They're super popular for athletes. Right? I know, they I know, come I know. Up all the time. Yeah, yeah. Do you think they're overrated? Yes. You seem, you seem a little bit like extremely overrated. Offended by my question. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I actually, it's 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 very interesting that most people. Uh, like if familiar. you lead with that, you're like the the Pinoe test. It measures VO2 max. So it's like, oh, it's yeah. okay. a real test. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so actually, you know, most people are familiar with the term VO2 max, and 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 they often associate VO2 max with uh, cardiometabolic testing, thinking that VO2 max is pretty much the only thing that I take <laughs> yeah, away right. uh, when I do a cardiometabolic test. When in fact, it's just the tip of the iceberg. Totally. Um, VO2 max is your peak oxygen consumption. That's it. Uh, it's how much oxygen your body is able to consume uh, at maximum. Um, it is a great indicator of health, uh, cardiorespiratory health, also a great indicator of overall health. Um, a lot of clinicians are now using VO2 max in order to predict outcomes in surgeries. So that's another, that's cool. yeah, cool. And also a, a great indicator for athletic performance. However, it is not prescriptive in the sense that it cannot tell you whether it, it, it doesn't give you training zones. Training zones are developed based on your substrate utilization, your VT1 and your VT2. Right. Um, uh, VT2, by the way, is another term for anaerobic threshold. Uh, people are familiar, so, so, uh, th- think that you have two thresholds in human physiology, which determine your uh, your your intensity zones. Uh, first threshold, VT1, or uh, other people call it aerobic threshold. Second threshold, VT2, most people know it as anaerobic threshold. And these are thresholds that uh, we derive uh, based on our RAM test. Now, the really rough calculation of these, mm-hmm. right, is uh, someone just takes their max heart rate and does a percentage of it, mm-hmm. right? Now, often that's inaccurate, mm-hmm. but like just for people who want to understand aerobic threshold versus anaerobic threshold, mm-hmm. approximately what are those percent heart rates? Oh, it's impossible to say. It's literally impossible to say, like, because they can be so different. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any, any, any sort of attempt to uh, give an estimation based on percentages is, I mean, it doesn't really make any sense. Okay, so it's yeah. useless. Yeah. Um, now, if someone has a high anaerobic threshold, mm-hmm. uh, what does that mean? Okay. So, first threshold is where your body starts to build up fatigue, but still in a sustainable uh, level. This is the aerobic threshold. Aerobic threshold. V1. V1. VT2 is the anaerobic threshold, is a threshold above which your body goes into the red zone and it starts to build fatigue at an unsustainable rate. This is where you will very soon blow up. And back to the oxygenating your muscles, if you're operating above your anaerobic threshold for Mm -hmm. a long period of time, Mm -hmm. eventually your muscles are going to go. What's going to give up first, we don't know. We need to test. Something's going to go. But something is going to go first. Will it be the first gear, lungs, second gear, heart, or third gear, muscles? 
we need to test. There's no way of knowing until we test. Now, this is why high-performing endurance athletes measure their anaerobic threshold and then in turn try to train below it so that they can try to build up more endurance without running out of gas. So... Uh, or do you, or do you disagree with that concept? No, 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 no. Knowledgeable endurance athletes and coaches will test different intensities, will pretty much map out the entire spectrum right. in order to understand how much am I burning in different intensities. Um, what is uh, The anaerobic threshold is already too much for, too high for an endurance athlete. Like, yeah, yeah, way because, too high. Yeah, way too high. Uh, endurance athletes usually focus on on mapping out the area around the first threshold because this is the area where they perform and train most of the time. It's like 60-70% of your max heart rate typically. Roughly, roughly. But again, it's... Very yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Uh, so how did you get into all this personally? Personally, so... Um, the idea started from my uh, co-founder and childhood friend, Apostolos. Okay. Uh, we started the company together. So he was working uh, during his PhD uh, in Cambridge, UK uh, on uh, breath analysis. And the reason why he got into breath analysis is because he went to a conference and uh, they were talking about breath analysis in general uh, and he got fascinated by it. And he started looking into the different, the different applications of breath analysis and cardiometabolic testing is actually the most mature application of breath analysis. Breath analysis has some other areas which are you know, very, very different uh, to what we're discussing now. For example, you can detect lung cancer from uh, analyzing your breath. Um, and uh, there's you know, other companies which are doing these things. Uh, but he saw that cardiometabolic analysis is something that is extremely interesting and uh, very few people do it. And uh, the primary reason is, as I said earlier, very expensive devices and uh, no support for the average practitioner on how to use the data in order to provide actual and uh, actionable programming for for, for his So clients. he comes to you and says, Panos, this is fascinating. Sort of like that. B back then, <laughs> I, 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 was, I, was, I had just graduated from Stanford. I was working at a tech company uh, in, in the Valley. And because we've known each other since the age of six, um, I go back to Greece, we go on vacation together, and he started, uh, he started to talk about this idea, this prototype that he had built. And I was like, dude, that's awesome. Like, we got to do something so about it. So having drinks at Mykonos and talking it, 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 about It was this. actually Kufonisia. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. People who don't know Kufonisia should definitely go to Kufonisia. Okay. But anyways, so yeah, we were at Kufonisia. And, um, you know, at then, like, he was still doing his PhD, he wasn't sure. He was, you know, entertaining the thought. I was working. Uh, I was also entertaining the thought. But after a certain point when, you know, uh, he, 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 he brought the prototype to a, a pretty mature state, uh, we're like, okay, uh, we should, you know, try and raise money and, and, and turn this thing into a company. And that was late 2016. Uh, and, uh, yeah, uh, late 2016, we started doing uh we started building the team we started to uh perfect the product uh initially uh what we had built was a portal uh, was, was a handheld uh, metabolic analyzer because we were focusing more on rmr testing resting metabolic rate testing um and uh very soon however we realized that there's so much incredible value in uh, measuring a person's cardiometabolic response during exercise and that's when we started to transition into a uh, exercise uh, device. Uh, and, you know, we did a lot of R&D uh, for quite some time. And uh, here we are now. <laughs> it's amazing, man. I think what you've built is really cool. And uh, and I'm excited to be partnering with you guys. Same here. Um, what, what else should people know? How can people learn more about uh, Pnoe if they want to? Yeah, yeah uh, definitely follow us on Pnoe Analytics on Instagram. Uh, also, check out our website, uh, mypnoe.com. And uh, yeah, these are the two main portals for us. And look, I'm, I'm sure uh, for folks listening right now, like you, you'll you'll be hearing more from Panos on our channels. And, you know, I think this is just the beginning of uh, of integrations. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thanks for coming on, man. This yeah. was fun. Yeah. 
Thanks again to Panos for coming on the podcast, and I'm very excited to be working with Pnoe going forwards. If you're not already a WHOOP member, you can join our community for as low as $30 to begin. We provide you with 24-7 access to your biometric data, as well as analytics across strain, sleep, recovery, heart rate variability, and more. The membership comes with a free WHOOPstrap 3.0. We offer 6, 12, and 18-month memberships. The more you sign up for, the more you save. If you enter the code WILLAHMED at checkout, that's W-I-L-L-A-H-M-E-D, we'll give you $30 off a membership just for listening to this podcast. For our European customers, the code is WILLAHMEDEU, and that'll give you 30 euros off when you join. For our listeners in Australia, the code WILLAHMEDAU will get you 35 Australian dollars off your membership. And for our current members, you can upgrade to the Whoopstrap 3.0 and get access to all the new Whoop Live features by following the link in your Whoop app. If you're out of contract, you'll literally get the 3.0 for free when you commit to another six months. Check out whoop.com slash thelocker for show notes and more, including links to relevant topics from this conversation and others. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Whoop podcast on iTunes, Google, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. We'd love to hear your feedback. You can find me online at Will Ahmed. I try to respond to everyone who reaches out. Uh, and you can also follow at Whoop on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can email thelocker at whoop.com with any thoughts, ideas, or suggestions you may have. Thank you again to all our listeners, to all our Whoop members. We love you.